Welcome to Copyright Clearance and his podcast series. I'm Christopher Kinneley for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, September 15th, 2017. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from his office in Manhattan. Welcome back, Andrew. Greetings, Chris. Well, the world's biggest publishing rights event, Frankfurt Book Fair, returns in just under a month's time, Andrew, and PW and Beyond the Book will cover that massive event extensively over coming weeks. And in the meantime, the rights discussion has already gotten underway for fall 2017. For Managing Publishing Rights Across the Supply Chain, a book industry study group special event in New York, the message was intended as a wake-up call for the industry. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Late last week, there was a half-day seminar series here in New York City hosted by the Book Industry Study Group and uh, its executive director, Brian O'Leary, who said the program was really an effort to sort of shape the conversation about where the industry is headed when it comes to rights. And the event was also based on the results of a survey and a new BISG white paper, uh, and also, I think, a report on 10 rights management software vendors and their products. And you can read all about the event, which was covered by my friend and colleague Calvin Reed here at PW, and that's on the PW website now. And I'll just say that in the coming weeks, I'll have much more about BISG and the conversation about rights, uh, especially as rights as it's going to be happening at the Frankfurt Book Fair, uh, and this will all be within our Frankfurt Book Fair coverage. And I'll just leave it with this for now, and that's that the rights issues facing publishers are indeed complex, but absolutely critical for them to get a handle on. Well, well critical indeed, Andrew, and we took an opportunity to speak to Calvin Reed uh, this this week, and he told me that what he heard that day at the BISG seminar was a sadly familiar story for anyone following publishing and related rights issues. Publishers either don't know what their rights are exactly, have not fully investigated in software solutions, very often don't know what their rights are, and can't collect rights revenue that is actually owned in them. Moving away from that confusion towards some kind of rights management clarity was the stated goal of the session for Brian O'Leary, BISG Executive Director. At Book Expo this spring, BISG had reported out on a survey of publishers that called rights an untapped opportunity. Calvin Reed notes that publishers who do seize the opportunity have had significant success. They rounded out their discussion of rights by talking about how rights and permissions have evolved over the years from a back office, you know, service department that, you know, just was supposed to get stuff done and stay out of the way. <laughs> but really in the modern era with the introduction of these software packages and uh, digital rights managements, these departments have since become significant revenue producers. Uh, I, Mr. Corrick, I think, said that the um, Penguin Random House Rights and Permissions Department generates somewhere around a seven figures uh, in revenue. Paula Goldweber said the uh, the John Wiley system since joining uh, CCC Rights Link has grown from generating about a million dollars in revenue in 2008 to more than six million dollars today. She talks about the incredible volume of work that's able to get done because people can go online and both for simple rights and for free rights where you just need to get where it's easy. It's been able to free up the staff to do more complicated rights packages that can't necessarily be automated. Calvin Reed reporting on BISG's Managing Publishing Rights Across the Supply Chain program. 
When Beyond the Book returns in a moment, Andrew Albanese reviews The Judge's Brief in a copyright case involving children's guides to literature. I'm Christopher Kenyon. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, September 15th, 2017, and PW's Andrew Albanese is on the line from New York. On September 7th, a federal judge in New York finally issued a written legal opinion in a closely watched copyright case. Kinder guides are children's guides to four classic novels that are still under copyright. Now, we say finally issued the opinion because it came out after six weeks uh, earlier, the judge had found those adaptations to be infringement, but he had left the reasons obscured. So now we, we have the reasons, we have the opinion, and I would guess, Andrew, you have some opinions about that opinion. Uh, after all these years working together, you know me so well. <laughs> uh, indeed, Judge Jed Rakoff finally did issue his opinion in this really fascinating copyright case that we've talked about a bit on this show, uh, and that's a suit against the upstart publisher named Moppet Books. Now, for listeners who don't get Google alerts about copyright stuff like I do, I'll just offer a quick refresher here. Uh, the case was first filed in January by Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, along with the estates of Truman Capote, Jack Kerouac, Arthur C. Clarke, and Ernest Hemingway. And the suit alleged that Moppet Books' Kinder Guide editions, and you described them very well, uh, they're illustrated editions of classic novels, including Breakfast at Tiffany's, On the Road, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, terrific 2001 A Space Odyssey, and The Old Man and the Sea, were plain and simple, according to the plaintiffs, unauthorized derivatives cast as study guides intended for the elementary school set. Well, back in July, just a few days after oral arguments uh, had been had concluded, Judge Rakoff had issued summary judgment for the plaintiffs on all counts, rejecting Moppet's claims that their editions were in fact protected by fair use. But, as you know, he offered no supporting opinion, which is unusual, except for Judge Rakoff, who I'm told does this quite frequently. But last week, Rakoff did finally get around to issuing his opinion. Uh, and in the meantime, on August 14th, he also got around to issuing a permanent injunction banning the distribution of these allegedly infringing books. And now, actually, a trial awaits on October 2nd that will determine whether or not Moppet Books is guilty of willful infringement. But anyway, on to the opinion that Rakoff issued on September 7th. And my opinion of that opinion and... Yeah, let's just say I'm a little troubled by it. To me, it certainly reads like a pretty perfunctory effort. In fact, Rakoff needed only 12 pages to dispatch with Moppet Books' fair use claims. Uh, and I found his four-factor fair use test, as it was um, explained here in this decision, to be wanting, to say the least. And if, if I'm really being honest and blunt here and speaking personally, and not for my esteemed employer, Publishers Weekly, I have to say I think this case stinks. Uh, and I think it points to some real problems with the way copyright now works in the modern era. All right. So the audience and I always enjoy, Andrew, when you put one of these cases to the smell test. So so what, what about the Rakoff opinion has you holding your nose? 
Well, in terms of the opinion, it reads like it was phoned in, like like the judge really had this sort of visceral gut reaction that, hey, this this can't be legal to the case. And then he ruled on his gut, and then he threw this opinion together to support his gut feelings. So, you know, the case ter- itself turns on a pretty simple question. Rakoff writes that the central question of this case is whether Moppet's illustrated children's guide to these adult novels are the kinds of derivative works that Congress reserved to copyright holders, or whether they're the sort of thing like criticism or parody that Congress intended to allow others to step up and exploit. And in short, Rakoff holds that the copyright holders here in this case have a very strong claim to control what he holds are derivative works, their children's adaptations, uh, that they belong completely to the copyright holders. And okay, fair enough. Copyright holders do have considerable power over creating or licensing the creation of derivative works. That's not controversial at all, especially not when it comes to works of fiction, uh, which you know merit extra protection because of their creative nature. So the question then becomes, is there a fair use argument to justify what Moppet Books did in creating these kids' guides? And what troubles me is the cynical approach that Jed Rakoff brought to the facts that were presented here. In essence, Rakoff accuses Moppet Books of creating an educational disguise to justify blatantly unauthorized editions. He summarily rejected Moppet's contention that introducing these classic works in this kid-friendly way was transformative at all. Um, and he does so with a really Ill, odd and ill-fitting comparison at one point. He argues, and I'm going to pull this up and quote here, he argues that Moppet's removal of adult themes does not meaningfully recast the work any more than an airline's editing of R-rated films so that they can be shown to children on a flight absorbs the airline from paying a royalty. I mean, first of all, no one's showing R-rated films to kids on airplanes just because they're bleeping out bad words or not showing nudity, you know? My kids are not going to be watching Goodfellas on our trip to Seattle, even if Joe Pesci's F-bombs are bleeped out. Sorry, kids. I I know you want to, but it ain't happening. But that analogy also fails because the Kinder Guide editions are significantly more than bleeped out or edited originals. I have them. I've studied them. I've read them to my kids. They include really nice original drawings, short biographies of the author, authors, very brief and child-friendly original retellings of some of the novel's key plot elements, and I'll stress the word some there because the summaries are less than a thousand words total and contain no direct quotes from the text. And if you think these books really represent what happens in any of the novels at issue here, like Rakoff does, you really haven't read those novels, I have to say. The Moppet retellings here are very subjective, uh, and the guides also include character summaries and quizzes at the end. So my point is that by any measure, there is some transformative work going on here. And while, yes, that work does involve some possibly protectable elements, characters, plot events, etc., I think there's undeniably at least some educational value here. You know, I've read the books to my kids, as I say, and let me tell you, they certainly served to generate some comment and criticism around my house. But Rakoff disagrees with all that, and he actually accuses Moppet Books of not recounting the novels in the service of a literary analysis, but offering literary analysis in the service of trying to make the guides qualify for fair use. In other words, what these sneaky kids in L.A. were trying to do at Moppet Books was to steal the works and then try to cover their tracks by making them study guides. But adding a bit of commentary to an unauthorized derivative, Rakoff argues, does not make it a protectable publication. Now, honestly, I find that to be unsupported by the facts, and there's really is educational values to to these books. Um, I think this broad ruling, if left to stand, 
could have an effect on educational publishers and even companies like Cliff Notes and Spark Notes that do sort of synopses of these adult novels. In essence, Rakoff and his decision is saying that an author's heirs can exercise enormous control over how or if an author's work can be taught to kids. And given the length of copyright today, that could be for well over a century. So I see. I don't see how this slight analysis here really takes into account uh, the public's interest in copyright. Well, the only people in the courtroom, Andrew, were the attorneys for the publishers and the authors, and obviously those parties uh, feel that something important is at stake. And copyright infringement, of course, strikes at the heart of publishing. Yet I think you see this fight over fair use is not entirely fair itself. So why not? Yeah, so let's say I don't blame Rakoff entirely for his decision here. I think that this case was very poorly argued by the defendants, who are not a big corporation and don't have deep pockets and can't afford a heavy-hitting, experienced copyright lawyer like Marsha Paul, who was the plaintiff's attorney here. Um, Marsha Paul is a probably one of the best intellectual property lawyers in the world. Um, and that's one reason why I think this case stinks, as I said before. As Lawrence Lessig has once told me, fair use today is the right to hire a lawyer. And for most people, that's just not possible. And I've spoken on a number of occasions now with a two-person team behind Moppet Books, uh, that's Frederick Colting and Melissa Medina, and I have to say it's possible that they're not going to have the funds to appeal this decision. And because this case doesn't involve digital, I think it's not too terribly sexy to the kind of pro bono outfits out there who might be inclined to take on it. Fair use case today, which means that this decision, which really would benefit from further argument, might just remain in place and scare the hell out of any other indie publisher who might want to innovate using copyrighted works. But why I really think it stinks is, you know, it just strikes me the way it was done is classic bullying. You know, Marsha Paul and the plaintiffs, in my opinion, saw a chance to really dunk on a smaller opponent here, knowing full well that it wasn't going to be a fair fight. And if the decision goes without an appeal, it was going to codify some pretty strong law in favor of authors' copyrights. And the reason why I think this was bullying, and I know that's a loaded term these days, but what stands out to me in reading all the documents is I don't know why these publishers and these estates all had to band together. In fact, I don't understand how Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster even have standing in this case. Uh, the authors own the copyrights here. Rakoff himself holds in his decision that this is about licensing or exploiting a derivative work, and it's apparent from the paperwork that I've seen that the publishers don't have a right to those derivative works. So um, their rights aren't being affected in any meaningful way. They're not losing income because these these editions, if anything, benefit them. They help sell editions of their adult works. So, you know, why were the publishers in these massive estates allowed to, you know, band together to fight these two people in LA? You know, why not sever the publishers from the case here? Why not have the estates fight this individually? Um, it seems to me that a good lawyer could have made some hay. A good lawyer with a real budget could really have made some hay on some of these issues. And, you know, the public would have benefited, I think, from a real quality look at where that line is between a copyright holder's right to control derivative works and legitimate educational uses. Now, I'm not saying that Kinner Guides didn't cross a line. Maybe they did. Um, what I'm saying is that this case, which was decided in summary judgment uh, and with a real inequity between the two sides here, offers little to no guidance 
to where the line may be. Uh, you know, how is commerciality a factor here? You know, can you draw versions of characters from famous books and include them in your books? There's really rich stuff that just really got breezed over here. And for big publishers and for mega author estates, that's really a win because I think it stares off people from even trying. But for the public who might benefit from having guides to books like this, I think it's a loss. All right, then. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly, senior writer and public defender. Thanks for joining me on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Coming up next on Beyond the Book at Editis, France's second largest publishing house, Virginie Claisen is chief innovation officer. In July, she became president of the European Digital Reading Laboratory. Claisen follows the state of digital reading and publishing in the French and European marketplace as closely as anyone. In her office in the 13th arrondissement of Paris, near the monumental National Library, she recently told me that for European publishers, support of EDR Lab is an investment in an open and interoperable future. What we are doing with EDR Lab is trying to help publishers and the whole book chain to build a sustainable ebook ecosystem, giving readers the best reading experience, protecting their freedom to buy their ebooks and e-readers where they want, with the guarantee of the interoperability. Europe's open, interoperable ebooks ecosystem. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries RightsDirect and Ixis drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book.